This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, from fake news to conspiracy theories, using logic to safely navigate the information landscape. If you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction. The information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Osted, who is the Distinguished Professor and Protective Life Endowed Chair in Healthy Aging Research of the Department of Biology, University of Alabama at Birmingham, and Scientific Director of the American Federation for Aging Research. In addition, he directs the NIH-supported UAB Nathan Schock Center of Excellence in the Basic Biology of Aging, one of only six such centers in the United States. He is also the co-director of the Nathan Schock Center's Coordinating Center and serves on the Executive Committee of the National Institute on Aging's Research Center's Collaborative Network. His current research seeks to understand the underlying causes of aging with a long-term goal of developing medical interventions that slow the age-related decay in human health. He is author of more than 200 scientific peer-reviewed publications covering nearly every aspect of aging from cells to societies. Today, we will be discussing his recent book, Methuselah's Zoo, What Nature Can Teach Us About Living Longer, Healthier Lives. Anyway, Stephen, I just want to thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. Well, thank you. It's nice to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, I'm super interested to uh, get into your book because I'm certainly fascinated by the area of longevity and longevity research. But before we kind of get into that, I'm wondering where it all started for you from a scientific perspective. Like, when did you become interested in science? You know, why biology? And then eventually, how did you get into longevity research? So, right. So I had a very circuitous route into what I'm doing now. I, in high school, I, w I was not very interested in high school uh, in, in biology. I was, I was interested in math and I always assumed I would be a mathematician. And when I got to college, I suddenly realized in my second year, I didn't really like math <laughs> all that much. And so I switched to English literature. And in fact, my degree was in English literature. My intention was to write the great American novel and 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 become famous that way. Um, since you haven't heard of my great American novel, you could probably tell how that worked out. Um, while I was working, though, I was doing a variety of odd jobs to keep food on the table. I drove a taxi in New York City. Uh, I hustled pool all over. Um, uh, I drove. I drove a truck on construction sites. I did. I did a number of things. I was a newspaper uh, a reporter. Eventually, I ended up by a strange series of circumstances training lions for the movie business in Hollywood. And uh, the way that happened is that I was uh, working for a newspaper in Portland, Oregon. 
one of my, uh, my karate instructor, in fact, had some African lions for pets because he was fundamentally crazy, although I didn't understand that at the time. And I had watched his house and his lions when he was out of town, and, and he got an offer to use them in a movie, needed some help to move them down to Hollywood. So I thought, this is a long weekend, I'll help him out. Um, we had quite the exciting trip down there because he didn't have a trailer or anything for him. What we did is we took the back seat out of his Mercedes and put a lion in the back seat and then proceeded to drive a thousand miles uh, with this lion in there. Anyway, I okay. ended up <laughs> being hired by the movie producer to train lions, even though I didn't know anything about it. He had actually hired some professional trainers already. And he said, don't worry that, you know, that <laughs> they'll, they'll teach you. And that whole, so I ended up doing that for three and a half years. And it was that experience that really awakened an interest in biology that I think I'd always had. Um, but I didn't, I couldn't see myself spending the rest of my career training animals for the Hollywood movie business. For one thing, uh, it was pretty dangerous business. And, and uh, I got injured one time, seriously enough to spend several weeks in the hospital. I had a lot of time to ponder my future. So I thought, well, I've accumulated all this no applied knowledge about what makes animals tick and how to manipulate their behavior. Could I study them more scientifically? And so I decided that since I, the only biology class I had had was microbiology for poets or something like that, um, I needed to go back to school, learn some science, see if I still wanted to do that. And my long-term goal was to go to Africa and study lions in the wild. That's really what I, I, I wanted to do. So I did all that, except when I got to Africa, there was really no place for me to study the lions. The project that I'd gone over to uh, be involved in had been taken over by somebody, so it was no longer available. So I shifted uh, my interest using my math background to really do a PhD that was very um, mathematical about the evolution of animal combat behavior. So. Um, now, all this is about as far from aging and longevity as you could imagine. <laughs> when I finished my PhD and got a postdoc, I was working in South America at a biological field station, studying, again, behavior of some interesting social birds down there. But I started a, a side project with a friend of mine on opossums. And that, again, had nothing to do with aging or longevity. It was something completely different. But in the course of doing it, I, I had these radio collared opossums and I recaptured them once a month. And what I discovered to my shock and, and interest was they would go from a healthy young adult to an old decrepit opossum within a few months. Um, that astonished me. I, I had a series of pets as a kid and I'd had house cats. Opossums are about the same size as house cats. I thought, well, they must age, you know, they probably live 10 or 12 years. Um, but no, they live two years and that's it. And they just fall apart. And that observation interested me so much that by the time I had finished the project, I completely lost interest in why I'd started the project. And I now was interested in, well, why, does it, why do these guys age so fast and other species age so slow? And you know, it was, it was the evolutionary puzzle that got me. I never was thinking about human implications. I was thinking, why can't nature that does this remarkable job of taking a single fertilized egg 
having it grow up into an, a, a, a healthy young adult, you know, frog or bird or human, why can't it simply keep that thing healthy longer? Because it seemed to me looking around, everything seemed to fall apart with age. It's just that they did it at different rates. And so that was 35 years or so ago. And um, this is, it's kept my interest ever since about after I've been doing it for about 15 years, I'm kind of slow on the uptake. I thought, ah, oh, people would be interested in this. This could have interesting human implications. And so I kind of shifted my focus to trying to see what, what could we learn from this rich diversity of animals uh, that nature has provided us that might be helpful for making humans to develop ways to live healthier lives. Yeah, really interesting story. And I, um, what I really like most about what you said there, so you know, going back to a little bit early before you get into your story to longevity is a lot of individuals that I have on uh, have circuitous routes to wherever it is that they're getting to. And when you said that, I was like, oh, I'm probably not going to be too shocked. A lot of people come on, they bounce around a little bit between majors, but I definitely wasn't expecting the raising lions or, or moving or shipping lions cross country part to be in there. <laughs> yeah, and it was, um, I mean, that was just, that trip itself, you know, I could write a book about that trip itself because, <laughs> you know, the lion got restless and there, it's in the back seat. There's nothing between yeah. the front and the back seat, you know, and we're driving at night and we got pulled over by the police. And, it, <laughs> it, 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 you know, in retrospect, I'm, th I'm thinking I must have been crazy to do this, but I didn't know any better. You know, I thought this guy's got a lion for a pet. He must know what he's doing. After I'd been working with them for a year or so, I thought, He's completely out of his mind. I'm surprised I survived this trip. So, uh, but anyway, it was it was an adventure and an experience, and I, I really wouldn't trade it. Uh, I also just loved being around the animals. I discovered yeah. that for the first I, probably nine months, I, I never took a day off. I couldn't hardly wait to go in and 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 start playing with the animals. I didn't like being on the movie set so much, but uh, playing with the animals, training the animals, I loved that. Never got tired of it. No, yeah, that's great. And I think that kind of illustrates when we're younger, we don't really know what we're doing. And you're just kind of doing whatever it is, odds and ends jobs that you need to in order to kind of survive. And then hopefully, you'll figure things out that it, that the path to success, if you will, whatever it is that you kind of, you know, choose to do at some point in your life, uh, for the rest of your life, you know, and people even do don't do something for the rest of their lives but you know being able to find something that you you love and that you're passionate about it can do for a very long time it's not really a direct path for everybody and i think that your story illustrates that beautifully yeah and i'd like to take tell the college students that because you know i sometimes have advisees and they come in and they go oh my goodness i'm 19 years old now and i don't know what i want to do with the rest of my <laughs> life and i say chill you know it, it'll come to you you know, do what you like now, eventually you'll figure it out. And um, I, I do think we tend to push people to specialize too quickly. And they, they quite often specialize and then years later realize this is not really what I want to do. I, I used to uh, be at a medical school and I have every year I have fourth year medical students come up to me and say, you know, I, I discovered I don't really like to be around sick people. You know, and I go, oh, this is, this is not a great time to be discovering that. Um, 
So yeah, my thought is, uh, you know, until you find what, once you find it, you know, you found it, you know, I remember very well saying, this is going to occupy me from now on. I just love this. The science is so interesting. The questions are so fundamental. Um, and it's also easy to explain to people. You know, I've worked in some obscure areas before where somebody asked, well, why do you do that? It, it wasn't so easy to explain uh, in less than 100 words. But if you work on aging and longevity, everybody kind of gets that right off the bat. Yeah, you're right about that. I think that everybody understands almost immediately what it is that you're working on. Uh, it's not some sort of obscure, um, archaic, sort of difficult to explain area of science. When you say aging or longevity, light bulbs go off almost immediately for people. And I think everyone's mostly interested in it because we all realize that we are aging every day, even though we don't really kind of keep track of it too much in the mirror uh, because it's slow and you don't really see the changes. But we know that we don't live forever. And that's always kind of in the back of our minds. We see it in our parents, we see it in our grandparents and eventually kind of notice it in ourselves through looking, flipping back through old photos. Yeah, and, and also we see it in our pets. You know, uh, you know that, that's, yeah. that, that, that's one of the things that you learn very early is, you know, your your favorite animal is not going to be around uh, probably even until you get out of college. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 around us all the time. And, you know, some people are comfortable with that and some people aren't and uh, some people are in denial about it and some people you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come up with any rationale to think it's not going to happen. And when you're young, of course, you don't really think it's going to happen to you. But I remember very vividly when I was playing basketball one time, and I'd always been one of the quickest people that I played basketball with. And suddenly I noticed somebody just blew by me that shouldn't have been able to do that. <laughs> and I thought, uh oh, it's happening, you know, it's happening, huh. it, it really is. And, <laughs> and for, you know, for, you wonder, people think about aging differently. We all think about an age at which somebody is old. Usually it's about 10 years older than we are uh, at the time. But if you think about it, really, if you're, if you're a Olympic swimmer, you know, you're old when you're 22, or if you're a gymnast, and if you're a professional football player, maybe you're old when you're in your 30s. And that's kind of tragic, uh, if you think about it, because you still have really half of your life, more than half of your life to live. And yet people are considering you as kind of spent. And so um, I think that must be very hard to deal with. Um, those of us in more normal professions don't really have the same kind of, I guess, um, attitudes thrown at us. Yeah, I suppose the way that you look at age is very subjective. And obviously, we have approximately 80 years, everyone in a developed world, some, something along that. But depending on what you do and what sector of life you find work in, aging might mean something very differently to you. Uh, so for example, like if you're a, you know, in the in the movie industry, and you're very much dependent upon your physical attractiveness, that doesn't last forever. And unless you're a very talented actor or actress, which isn't always the case, but that industry. Uh, and then, like you said, in sports, you have a very small window there 
with which you are actually considered of age where you're able to compete and be good at what it is that you do. And then before you know it, you kind of age out of it and you're not able to do that anymore. Yeah, that has to be yeah. kind of dev that has to be devastating, I would think. Really, really hard to accept. Um, certainly a large life transition after that period, if you find yourself working in one of these industries or in this type of position. Yeah, I think that's pretty obvious if you look at the movie industry where people will have these um, really terrible plastic surgeries at some point in their career and, uh, you know, go from, from being very beautiful to, to looking kind of hideous. And, you know, that, but that's the attempt to keep, to keep youth. And, and uh, I understand that, but um, there's something also very human about learning to accept, you know, whatever age that you are. This comes up a lot when I, I've written a few things on retirement age. And whenever I do, I get a lot of correspondence from people. So my take on the um, retirement age is that, you know, it was 65 in 1935 when Social Security uh, came into existence. And it's 66 and a half now for full retirement age. But yet life expectancy now at age 75 is what it was at age 65 in 1935. So, so basically, we're not keeping it up with the demographic changes, but, but it depends on your profession. You know, for those of us who sit in a chair at a computer all day, then there really is no reason that we should retire at 65 or 66 and a half or 70 necessarily. If you work in a job that requires hard physical labor, you know, people write me, and they say, you know, I my back is shot, my knees are gone. What would I do if I had to work another six or eight or 10 years? And it, that's very legitimate. Um, so it's, but this whole issue of how long should we work or how long do we need to work is something we're gonna have to come to grips with because one of the things of course that we're living through right now is that the global population is aging in a way it has never done before. And so we're going to have to face problems associated with that. I personally would rather face those problems with people who are growing old healthy than we're <laughs> growing old and, and we're sick and demented and disabled. So it kind of provides a, a motivation uh, for, for, for the things I'm interested in and, and do research on. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting to think about, uh, particularly with the, the aging population, like you said. and. Um, I know particularly in the United States, obviously one of the largest population is the baby boomers. So they're getting older now. And, you know, do we have the support structures in place for these older individuals are going to be leaving the workforce. So therefore you kind of have to think about, okay, well, how do you replace all these jobs? Because all these people are leaving the workforce. So a bunch of interesting questions, age-related questions come up. So they do. And it's the yeah. kind of thing, it's the slow change that we're not very good at dealing with, you know, it's gradual, you know, it's, it's like climate change, very similar to climate change. It happens gradually and, and it's very easy to live in denial. And then suddenly you're facing a healthcare system collapse because you're just not prepared for what, what's coming. And, um, <laughs> you know, I remember this cartoon I saw where there was this asteroid uh, called aging population that's coming, <laughs> coming at the earth and the politicians are sitting around saying it'll be all right don't worry it's going to miss us 
Um, but this particular asteroid is is not going to miss us. So uh, we need we need to do something about it. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think, it, like you said, it goes to like other issues within science where you have something you definitely can see it. All of the data points to it, and yet people are kind of sitting on their hands and not doing anything about it. So that's a problem that the scientific community is definitely dealing with society in general these days, particularly politicians who are concerned about getting elected in two years or four years down the road, you know, the very the very uh, short time spans versus the little bit longer thinking that we need to do in order to properly address these issues. Uh, and I'm thinking about global warming in particular. So, yeah. We yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think it's, we can, we can blame evolution for this because for most of our evolutionary history, it was the short-term solutions that mattered, you know, avoiding getting eaten by something, finding food for the next day or the next week. So our brains have really evolved to focus on short-term solutions, but now we're living in a time where that, that doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, but people have a very difficult time thinking in a different way than, than evolution has sort of molded us to think. Yeah, we definitely need to upgrade our thinking style collectively. For sure, I'm a huge proponent of that. But anyway, I so you know you did all these fascinating things. You found your route towards biology, then you ended up in longevity, uh, fascinated by the whole concept of aging. And at some point, you decided that all of this research that you'd done on longevity and aging over the years that you wanted to compile it and offer it to the public. So I'm just curious as to why you felt a strong need to write Methuselah's Zoo? That's, that's a very good question. Yeah, that's a very good question. So um, I, I wrote an earlier book on aging called Why We Age about 25 years ago, actually. And I did that because I'd written a, a piece, a popular piece. I, this is a, a vestige of my drive to be a world famous novelist, only to <laughs> discover I had no talent whatsoever <laughs> for that. Um, so I wrote this previous book and people for years have been asking me to update it and all. And I wasn't at all interested in going back and updating it. But I, you know, I've, I've now had three and a half decades to really just think about aging research and to realize that I think about it differently than almost anyone in the field. And the reason is I had all these other experiences. You know, I was a field biologist. I was a lion trainer. <laughs> The idea that 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 we would collapse all of our thinking about aging in mammals down to thinking about how to make a mouse live longer, I always thought was kind of bizarre. You know, there's 5,000 species of mammals. Some of them age much more successfully than we do by certain metrics. Mouse is one of the most unsuccessfully aging animals that we know about among mammals. Uh, but yet our biomedical research has sort of driven us to focus on this one species. And of course, since I've studied dozens of species, this just didn't make any sense to me. And so I thought, I've been telling people this for years and largely being ignored, but not entirely. I mean, you know, the National Institutes of Health has funded my research over the years, uh, but I really thought it was time because we're making real progress. We're very good at making mice live longer now. You know, <laughs> whether any of that is going to translate to make people health stay healthy longer is, is unknown. But I thought we have so many tools now 
that focusing on these same handful of species really doesn't make sense now. And so I thought really this was a book for the general public. You know, I thought about it as, as trying to be the, the, the David Attenborough of animal longevity uh, to just to get people interested in it, but also to put a little bit of pressure on my colleagues in the field to start thinking more broadly about the way they do their research. So, um, but I, I wanted to write something that the general public could understand. I mean, I write lots of scientific papers that are technical and, and uh, you know, are written for a pretty small audience. But I think there are some fundamental questions like you and I have been talking about that the public should be thinking about as well. And I thought, well, if I sort of intertwine this with a lot of fun animal stories, then maybe this will just get people thinking. So. Uh, if it does that, then I, I'm, I'm going to be happy with uh, the outcome. I thought it was a wonderful book, and I really enjoyed the stories. And I've talked to other science writers uh, on here before, and I definitely think that wrapping kind of these experiences, the facts that you've learned through your research into these narratives, these wonderful stories, really helped to make it more of an enjoyable read. And definitely for somebody who isn't scientifically trained, let's say, uh, or somebody who just has kind of a you know, high school bio uh, biology background, let's say, I think it just makes it more approachable in general. So yeah, well done. It was an excellent, excellent well, read. Glad, glad to hear that. Very glad to hear that. Wonderful. And uh, so one of the questions I do have is, I guess we can start off with, why do we age? Okay, so that was the title of my first book. Um, to try to sum it up briefly, the fundamental process of living is inherently destructive. All the things that go on inside all the cells of your body are basically continuously damaging your body. The only way that life continues to exist is because nature has provided us with repair systems. So each bit of DNA in each cell of your body is damaged more than 10,000 times a day. Um, but we have all these wonderful repair. Now, why are they damaged? That's, you know, moving this back. And well, um, you know, life is complex chemistry and complex chemistry then in, involves lots of violence. So your, your metabolism I think of as a sort of slow controlled fire, but fire has damaging side effects. It doesn't just provide heat, it provides soot, it can destroy things. And that's the way I think of your body. So you eat to provide your body with fuel and you use oxygen to help you burn that fuel to give you the energy that we need to survive. But there are side effects of doing all that. The side effects are damaging free radicals that are inside your cells. Um, there are uh, uh, changes in the proteins that make all the chemical reactions run in your cells. All those things are happening continuously, but yet we manage to repair most of that damage. Uh, and But uh, again, uh, some species repair it better than others. And I think we've been spoiled to think that, well, we must do it better than any other species, uh, but we don't. There are lots of things that we know that there are lots of species that do better than we do. And to me, it's those species that our research ought to be focusing on. Because one of, one of the phrases that I love to repeat 
is that nature is smarter than we are. Evolution is smarter than we are. It's had several billion years and billions of species to run experiments on. And if the conditions are right to favor long life and prolonged health, it's had lots and lots of opportunities to come up with solutions that we simply would never do on our own. But we can take advantage of that. I mean, in, in, in the pharmaceutical industry, they've been doing this for years. They, they've been going out prospecting in nature, right? Prospecting for unusual chemicals that might be good at, let's say, preventing cancer, killing uh, the, the germs that infect us, those sorts of things. And they've been very successful. And now we do that less, but that's because we've learned many of the lessons of nature and we can improve on some of those. Um, but really all our entire pharmaceutical uh, industry has arisen from natural products. My thought is we should be doing the same thing for aging. We should be looking at the animals that do it better, figuring out how it is that they do it better and trying to use that knowledge to figure out how to make humans, let's say, repair their DNA better or get or, or dispose of damaged cells more efficiently or something. We know of species, like I say, that do this better than we do, but yet we're stuck looking at these species that do it far, far worse than we do mm -hmm. in the hopes that if we understand the fundamentals of the biology that we can learn from those species, that this will help us find our own ways. But I don't think humans are as clever as nature. And so I, I, I'd, I'd rather rely on nature. And so uh, I'm hoping this book strikes some sparks and gets, you know, there's lots and lots of money pouring into aging research these days. Um, and I'm hoping some people can take this message to heart. And I, what I'd really love to see is some sort of Manhattan project focused on a handful of species that we know resist aging, resist these damaging processes of life better than we do to figure out how they do it and see, see if we can turn that knowledge into something useful for our own health. So I really like what you said there about nature being smarter than us. And I think it's, I, I, I mean, I completely agree with that, number one, but number two, I think so often we get wrapped up in, in our own hubris as a as a species thinking that you know our technologies and whatever we do it you know it's so great and wonderful which it is to a degree um but then i think we sometimes forget just how powerful nature can be and like you said nature's been running experiments on animals for millions of years through infinite iterations and it's been playing around with what works and what doesn't through natural selection and and eventually at some point the best solutions pop out and all we really need to do is kind of learn how to find these solutions that nature came up with already instead of trying to essentially reinvent the wheel i think yeah I, I mean i couldn't i couldn't agree more with that and to a degree we've already done that like you said with other products um, a great example is penicillin right i mean that was yeah. a, that was a happenstance where you're just playing around with molds but you know, you discovered antibiotics and nature 
created these antibiotics and all we had to do was assimilate it. And if you think about it, I mean, that particular chance encounter with penicillin and let's say the, you know, that gave, that, um, gave growth to the antibiotic industry in general. I mean, that has in, drastically had an impact on our, uh, on our lifespans. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's, it's saved millions and millions and millions of lives. Um, maybe, maybe more than any other human invention. And, you know, this was brought home to me because I, some of the time I spent doing field biology was in Papua New Guinea, living, you know, living in very remote uh, part of Papua New Guinea, you know, days walk from a little jungle airstrip. And I almost died twice from relatively minor wounds, wounds that I didn't even notice when I got them, but they got infected. And uh, one time I spent about a week in a tent unable to get out because my foot was swollen up like this. And I was, I was so out of it. I didn't really realize what was wrong with me. Um, and the uh, other time was in this, in this little village because I'd gotten so sick, I couldn't finish walking to, to this place I was going. Both of those times, once I figured out what was going on with me. And one time I just noticed these wide red lines running up my legs to my groin. I thought, oh, that's bad. But I happened to have antibiotics with me. And, you know, I, once I started taking antibiotics in 24 hours, I was fine. If I hadn't had those, I would have died at least twice. Um, and so it's, it was really brought home to me how, how important um, that, that was. And, and, you know, we owe a great deal from that. If, if you read history and think about health, whenever I read the biography of some famous person, George Washington or something, you notice how often they got, they got sick. They got really sick. And they had no idea why. Well, they didn't understand germs. They didn't understand hygiene. And they didn't have anything to do about it, even if they'd done it. So, you know, we're living in really blessed times where we understand illness and we can't cure it all but at least we understand it and we know how to prevent and how to treat a lot of things that used to kill people you know left and right you know if antibiotics have been invented in you know in the 1840s instead of the 1940s um the world would be just a very very different place yeah when you actually stop to think about it and all of the wonders that science has brought over the past couple hundred years it's truly remarkable. Uh, yeah. it, re it really is compared to what the standard of living was. I mean, even a hundred years ago, but like prior to that versus the standard of living that we enjoy today in your, let's say in a, in a country such as the United States or, you know, developed European countries, obviously, you know, to various degrees, there are differences between developed countries and then less developed countries currently, but still even the standards and what, let's say the least developed countries on earth enjoy today, um, which we think is, you know, not good compared to um, other developed countries such as the United States. I mean, still those standards are just significantly better from where they were uh, for the average uh, human, I, I don't know, a hundred years ago. <laughs> it's, it's pretty yeah, remarkable. And, and, and life is more, is infinitely more pleasant whenever I talk with somebody and they wax nostalgic about you know, life a hundred years ago in the old West or something. I go, really? And then <laughs> what if you needed your appendix out? Or what if you had a 
toothache or something. Are you ready for somebody to carve you open with a knife and pour whiskey down your throat? Uh, you know, it's just there, there are things that we're so spoiled in today. It's unbelievable. And I have to tell you, we, we're so spoiled, we don't deal with pain the same way. Let me just tell you about one adventure. Well, it wasn't an adventure. Something happened to me in Papua New Guinea. In this little village that I was, that I'd hired people to, to go places with me, um, I, I have maybe 10 or 20 people working with me. And once when we were walking through the forest, uh, a lady got really injured. What happened was that her the quadricep, the muscle in the front of your leg, ripped loose from her knee and balled up in her leg like that. It was just a big ball of muscle. And she, she, she was screaming. And they came to get me because I was kind of the village doctor, which only meant that I had aspirin you know, with me, which they considered to be a miracle drug. And uh, they wanted me to fix it. And I said, you can't fix it. You, you have to go to the airstrip and get evacuated. Well, the airstrip was three days away by walk. And oh my gosh, by, by God, she walked that distance with that injury and carried a little baby with her in the time and every once in a while she would sit down and she would grab a handful of nettles um and she would rub it on this muscle and this is where my this is where my western humors came out i thought oh this how this interesting that these people have this deluded belief that by rubbing nettles on on your aching you know destroyed muscle there it would help it when i got back to the states i was explaining to a friend of mine a physician he goes Oh, no, you're absolutely wrong about that. That was helping her that if you actually trip all those pain receptors, um, you get this acute pain from the nettles, but the chronic pain is much relieved. And so I thought, well, there you are. There you are, you know, Western arrogance. Um, but I mean, if this had happened to me, I no doubt would have just laid down and died right there. But this lady just made it to the, now I don't think she got out of, when she made it back to the village, I think it was at least a week before there was a plane, but eventually she got taken out for medical care. Yeah, that's a remarkable story. I can't even, I can't imagine. And it's really interesting there that she was basically, she was short circuiting her chronic pain receptors. Yeah. Um, and, or, or, or short circuiting it or masking it with uh, the acute pain receptors by rubbing the nettles around the area. So she was yeah. dealing with a different type of pain. So it just helped to kind of, I guess, help her tolerate it. I mean, I can't, having a ripped muscle like that all bundled up would just be like a chronic cramp and then having to walk three days. Oh my gosh, I can't even, yeah. That... Uh, if the, for three days <laughs> over incredibly difficult trails, difficult, you know, New Guinea is very mountainous. You're always going up or down. It's always raining. So it's always slippery. And this poor lady, but I mean, I just, I just can't imagine it was a, it was a very humbling thing to see somebody do that. Yeah, I can imagine. But anyway, uh, getting back to your book. Okay. So we age, it's just a part of who we are. Um, every animal on the planet does it, but some animals, you know, do it better than us. Some animals do it worse than us. And I'm curious if we could just talk for a second about that concept of like you're talking about metabolism. So like burning through, you know, you use the fuel and then you have these waste products and those are the free radicals. Of course, there's others, but the free radicals are the ones that damage the cell. And I know that 
there is something, there are like scaling laws in biology and certain animals have faster metabolic rates. So for example, you were talking about the mice versus, uh, versus other animals. And this has to do with just kind of how the uh, circuitry of animals are, are, are laid out, not just the, the nervous system, but I'm talking about like the circulatory system. And you have like faster heart rates in smaller animals and larger animals, they tend to move a little bit slower. And this isn't always the case, but you, you find this often. Um, anyway, yeah, I was just curious. I know you, you mentioned it briefly in the book when you first, uh, when you first start talking out, talking uh, about mice and looking to mice and using them as a proxy essentially for aging in humans. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the at the big picture, so if you take uh, you know a thousand species of mammals and you you plot their size against how long they live, there's a very consistent relationship. There's a lot of variation, as you say, around it, but it's very easy to say that an average mammal of a certain size lives this long, and it makes sense because of the metabolism. But kind of everything goes faster. For smaller animals, you know, their cells turn over faster, um, they breathe faster, their muscles twitch faster. I mean, life flickers by quickly uh, for them. Um, but there are these exceptions. And it's those exceptions that I think are the really interesting animals. And so, um, as you read in the book, we came up with this idea, my, my, my graduate student at the time, Kate Fisher and I, of something called a longevity quotient, which was simply a, a very simple idea, but a way to kind of quickly understand how well an animal aged compared to an average mammal of the same size. And, and we do that very well. You know, we age about four and a half times slower than an average mammal of our size. But there are things that age 10 times slower than a mammal of that size and that metabolism. And those are the ones that I think we have a great deal to learn from because they've managed to burn this energy very hot, but make it last very long. And, um, you know, I mean, the two groups of animals that really stand out among these are, are both flying animals. They're basically bats and birds. And just to give you a, a vivid example, I think of this, a mouse in the wild only lives three or four months on average, and the longest they live is maybe a year in the wild. In the laboratory, we can keep them alive as long as three years, okay? You take the same size bird that's living in the wild, so it's got to find food, avoid predators, deal with climatic disasters. Um, same size bird can live 20 years, despite all of the challenges that nature is throwing at it time, you know, time after time after time. And the other thing is it has to maintain a high degree of health and fitness for as long as it's alive because life in nature is so challenging. So you have a bird that lives 20 years that's the same size, but actually has a faster metabolic rate than the mouse has a higher body temperature, which should make all these chemical reactions go even faster, and also has blood glucose levels that would be diabetic if a human had them. So uncontrolled diabetes is the one disease that mimics aging, accelerated aging more closely. So how do these birds do this? Um, nobody's really taken a serious look at 
a, a bird longevity. Um, and I think it's overdue because we have lots of birds that would that could be laboratory birds, you know, not just like laboratory mice. They could be laboratory birds. They do very well in captivity. Um, and I, you know, the, one of them was a house sparrow, which, you know, that's the most common bird on the planet. <laughs> and um, it has a great deal. It has a great deal to teach us uh, about aging. If we only turned all of the wonderful scientific tools that we've developed over the last couple of decades on it to try to figure out how it does that. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, when you're talking about in the book about flying and longevity and why it is that flight in general would actually increase an animal's longevity. And I know that you, so you're talking about birds, but then you had also mentioned bats. So bats compared to humans age much slower. Um, I think that there was one in particular that had a quotient and the longevity quotient close to 10, um, which is, so could you explain that one more time? Because I'm not sure. quite sure how that works. So I mean, sure, I don't know what, what, okay, go ahead. So a longevity quotient is simply a number that describes how long an animal lives relative to how long you would expect for an animal of that size. Okay. So this, the bat you're talking about is about a quarter the size of a mouse, but it lives up to 40 years. And again, it does it in the wild, you know, and, and, um, and to just give you an idea of the kind of things that, you know, you think of health and longevity and birds tend to stay healthy right to the end. We'd also like to know how they do that. But just think about a bat now. It, it, for insect eating bats, they hunt in the dark and the way they find their prey is with this sonar. Basically, they scream and they listen for the echoes and it has to be very high pitched because um, you need the high pitch to, to, to precisely locate the prey. We lose our high frequency hearing before we're 20, we start to lose it. Um, you know, I like to torture the students in my class sometimes by playing these frequencies that I can't hear, that they can, and I can crank it up so loud they're holding their ears wanting to run out of the room. <laughs> um, but then they're here, that, that hearing is gonna be disappear by the time they're 25. Here you have bats whose lives depend on maintaining it that maintain a higher frequency hearing for much longer. Um, they also maintain their agility. They have to be able to track down prey in the dark, be agile enough because the prey is trying to evade them to catch it in their tail, flip it up and eat it. And to do that about every five seconds, not to starve to death. A flying bat has to eat about every five seconds, not to starve to death. The other thing is they might fly 50 miles away from where they're roosting and they have to be able to find their way back in the dark. And if it's a female that has a baby, she has to find that baby in a colony of what might be a million bats. So the spatial memory is maintained. And then the other thing is if you and I get sick, spend a week or more in the hospital. When I was, when I was mauled by the line, I spent about three weeks in the hospital, uh, most of that time being unable to get out of bed. When I finally did, I could hardly walk, you know, if you've ever had a cast on your arm because you've broken it, you know, they take the cast off and your muscles, are, you look horrible, you know, what's ever going to happen? So bats hibernate for nine months and they wake up and they fly away, you know, how did they preserve that muscle tone 
and that for that long being that inactive. It's this is just a, a few of the things that we have to learn from animals that people don't even hardly notice. I mean, you know, I did a river trip in Idaho a few years ago, and we were sitting around the campfire one night with the river guides, and I was telling him about bats. The guy's saying, I've never seen a bat. You know, I've seen, you, you come out here, you're on this river all summer, year after year, you've never seen a bat. He goes, yeah. I go, there's one. Uh, <laughs> and I think because they're about the size of a large moth, and they only start coming out around dusk, People either don't notice them at all, or they think they're a moth, or they think they're a bird or something. But these things are all, all around us, and they have an enormous amount to teach us about aging. So I always had an appreciation for bats uh, prior to reading your book, but I never really kind of understood how cool they were and everything that they do. I mean, the echolocation thing by in and of itself is remarkable. And I know that you expound upon that idea a little bit in the book. And I think you, you say that these bats, their echolocation is so good that they can dodge piano wires. Yeah, which is, in pitch, pitch black, yeah. In pitch black, which is, which is remarkable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, so when I, when I was doing my research in Venezuela, I was working on birds, but in trying to catch the birds, I would often inadvertently catch bats. I put up these huge nets to catch, because I was trying to catch specific birds. Some not, sometimes I would catch 50 bats and it would take me all morning to get all the bats out of the net and release them and everything. And the owner of the ranch came by one day and he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm taking the bats out of the net. He goes, oh, just kill them. And I said, Tomas, I can't kill. I can't. These are the most wonderful creatures. Even when I finally, I got bit once by a vampire bat and I was concerned that I might, it might be rabid. Um, but even then, it was very difficult for me to, to kill it and take it to be analyzed to see if it was actually a rabbit or not. And, and, and so, yeah, they're just remarkable, remarkable animals. Yeah, and they, they come in all different shapes and forms. So I know you talk about the vampire bat in particular and then some other types of bats that either feed in blood or insects, so the more carnivorous, but then you also have like the flying foxes. So those are the really big bats. And I think that they tend to be more vegetarian. So they're eating more fruits and things like that. But those are, are very interesting, uh, very, or yeah, they're interesting in and of themselves. They don't quite look like the other types of bats because, and they call them flying foxes because they, they, they do look, they have like these fox faces on them. But those that's are right. Really if you saw a picture of their face, you would think it could be a fox. You wouldn't think yeah. a bat at all. Yeah. Yeah. And they tend to be much larger than the other species. And yeah, just very interesting overall, this, that group of animal. And I'm curious, what exactly do they have to teach us about longevity? So you have this one particular bat that has a longevity quotient of 10. Um, Brant's bat, is that correct? I, mean, I don't yeah, know if I'm right. Being, yeah, That's the Brant's right. bat. Right. And you're saying it's, you know, it's the size of a mouse or, or half the size of a mouse, yet it lives to be 40 years, which is much, much longer than your average mouse would live, even though, you know, talking about scaling laws, the mammals and biology, something so small like that should have an actual, like should have a very high metabolic rate and a short lifespan, but here it doesn't. So I, I guess what type of machinery did nature impart to this particular little guy or gal uh, to allow it to live so long? Do we know? No, we don't. That's, that's, that's what we would very much like to know that. Uh, and I mean, 
And that's not the only one. That's the one that's that's got got the record. But it, there may be longer live ones. We know very little, really, about bats because if you think about it, they're hard to study. The people that study them have to go out at night and troop through swamps and deal with you know flying, biting insects because that's what bats like. So we know a lot less about them uh, than 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 we should. But we do know enough to know that they have a lot to teach us about about aging if we could if we could simply uh, figure it out. Um, so I now um, I've done a little bit of work on on bats myself. Um, one of the things that they seem to do is they seem to repair their DNA very very effectively, at least compared to a mouse. Um, you know, compared to a human, I I don't know because humans humans are hard to study. You know, they they won't they won't behave. They'll they'll lie to you about what they eat and how much they sleep and how much they drink and then you ask you tell them to do something and they don't do it but uh the bats are just remarkable i used to have a colony that was under a bridge when i when i lived in texas and i would just go out with an insect net in the daytime and i would scoop up a few and i'd take them back to the lab and i was very interested and uh and and the resistance to dna damage and so i i could basically Put them in a in an X-ray machine, a souped-up X-ray machine, and 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 radiate them, and then I would basically take them out, take a little blood, take them, let them go, put them back to where they were originally. But then I could look at their blood cells and 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 see how damaged is that DNA. If I did the same thing to a mouse, how damaged is that DNA? And the bats had far less damage. And how they did that, I don't know. But I again, I'd very much. Uh, like to know, and we have the tools these days to to figure that stuff out. If we had the the motivation and the money, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting. I'm hoping that people explore this in the future, and I'm excited uh, to hopefully learn eventually what it is that causes these bats to live for so long. Like you said, though, they have this ability to repair their DNA, but why exactly is that and what's going on there on a more fundamental level? So yeah, hopefully hopefully we have the answer for that one day. But there's a bunch of different animals in the animal kingdom that kind of age and do the whole longevity thing better than us. And I know that there's an entire section in your book about moles. And in particular, there's one in particular, the naked mole rat, probably one of the most ugly <laughs> ugly mammals on the planet, um, debatable of course, but they're essentially, I don't know if they're blind, but they're definitely hairless, they're naked, That's it's in the name and they live underground, but they have this amazing ability to, to live longer and to kind of avoid cancer. And, and the rate of cancer that they develop is almost, it's almost nothing um, from what you describe in the book. I mean, they obviously develop right. cancer, but they, you know, compared to humans, they develop at a, a very low rate. Yeah, um, I, I've been interested in, in them for from long before we knew how long they lived. And that's because they have this unique social system that's kind of like the social system that, that, that bees or ants have. There's a queen and that's the only reproductive in the colony. There are all these workers. Um, and so when I was really focused on animal behavior, I got very well focused because they were the first mammal that was discovered to have that same kind of social system. Now in bees and ants and termites that have that kind of social system, the queen lives much, much, much longer 
than the workers. In fact, in, in one ant, the queen lives about 20 times as long as the workers, who's all her daughters. So they all share the same genes, but the queen lives 20 times as, as long. In fact, I calculated that if, if, if human queens live 20 times as long as average humans, they would live a couple thousand years uh, and change. Um, so when I was got interested in aging, I immediately wrote to this woman who had reported this, and I said, "Do the queens live longer?" And she said, "Yeah, they can live, you know, as long as seventeen years." And so I thought, "Aha! So this is pretty interesting." And then I kind of forgot about that. But then um, a, a woman came out of her lab, brought them to the U.S. Shelley Buffenstein is her name. She got interested in aging. And pretty soon there were a lot of people studying them. And we're still learning about how long they live. We still haven't, you know, um, she's got one now that's 39 years old, um, which, and again, these are the size of a mouse. You're right. They're, uh, they're either very ugly or very cute, depending on your <laughs> perspective. They really are blind. They, they can see light and dark and, and, and that's about it, but they live underground in, in nature. And so they have no use for their eyes. And so they're, their eyes have really deteriorated. Um, but yeah, the remarkable cancer resistance. Now, this is the one of the animals that I talk about that there's probably the exotic animal that's had the most research done on it because they've really been studied for nearly 20 years now. Now, it's a handful of people who are studying, and it's nothing like mouse where there are hundreds of labs studying. There may be a half dozen at most labs studying them. But they have identified a chemical, which is a chemical that's in their skin and actually in all of their organs is fairly unique to them. Um, and they think that this chemical might be related to their cancer resistance. It's the same chemical that's called hyaluronin. It's used in a lot of cosmetics, it keeps skin supple, but they have a special kind of hyaluronin uh, that they manufacture. And so we're starting to learn something about what might explain the cancer resistance of, of them. The other interesting thing about naked mole rats is kind of like birds, they don't seem to get gradually decrepit. They seem to maintain about the level of health for at least until they're 20 before they start to deteriorate and maybe much longer than that. And so they live a long time, they don't get cancer. There's a lot of people studying them. I think if there's gonna be an exotic animal breakthrough, it's likely to be come first in them. But, there, but from, from what we know, because we know of some uh, animals besides naked mole rats that also have better cancer resistance than we do, they seem to be a variety of ways that nature has provided that cancer resistance. And this is some of the, I mean, some of the things we learn are not going to be easy to translate into human therapies. You know, for instance, elephants are very, very cancer resistant compared to us. Um, but they do it because they have many, many copies of one of our most potent cancer protectant genes. Now, we're, unless somebody's going to start fooling around with human genome, we're not going to provide, you know, one of the cancer protection genes that when it gets mutated, allows cells to gradually become cancerous. So if you have 20 copies and you lose one, then you still have 19 copies left that need to be mutated before you're going to lose your cancer protection. That's the kind of thing 
it's it's fascinating to a biologist, probably not going to have therapeutic uh, implications. But given there's a, such a diversity of ways to prevent cancer, probably ways to prevent virtually every disease that we can think of, um, this is why we really need to focus on not just one long life species, but a diversity of long life species. So neither the hyaluronic acid or the tumor suppressor genes you could see being used in the future to enhance human longevity? Oh no, the hyaluronic acid has the potential. Because oh, that one has we, potential. We, okay. we can make that special, we know how to make that special kind that, that the naked mole rat makes. Okay. We'll be able to synthesize that by the bucket in the laboratory. What we do with it, how we get it into cell, and whether this turns out to hold up. I mean, this is early days, right? But this mm -hmm. looks very, very promising. Uh, one thing we've learned during COVID, I think, is quite often the very first things that come out scientifically don't hold up. So you always <laughs> have to be a little bit cautious, right? But mm -hmm. eventually science figures it out. You know, we may zig and zag, but eventually we figure it out. And I think we're making great progress in, in, in the naked mole rat. It's, it's got a lot to teach us. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to uh, see where the whole hyaluronic acid then goes moving forward. You know, maybe at some point it'll be a part of people's daily regimen. That's like a supplement that they take or something like that. Could could be or get yeah. periodic injections or something, something. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. The and then what the elements you were saying. So there's uh, they have a seems like a plethora of these tumor suppressing genes compared to humans. Yeah. Humans have like two or something like that. I think you were explaining in the book and then elephants have uh, 20, or at least that was one particular type of element. They have elephant, they yeah. have a lot more than we do, but you're at some point you're talking about genetic engineering to get more, right? And I don't know how feasible that is. That's kind of what you're saying. Yeah. Well, I'm saying that's a possibility. We could do that. Yeah. We could do that eventually, whether we should do it. <laughs> is a totally different question. Okay. You know, once we start tinkering with the human genome of people who are in an embryonic state, we're doing things to people without their permission. So this raises all kinds of thorny ethical issues. Because for one thing, we don't know what some side effects might be of these things. You know, um, but even so, I, I think once you start making medical decisions for people without their permission, that's a, that's a slippery slope. And, and uh, so I, that's why I say I don't think we could do that. We could put 20 tumor suppressors in a human embryo if we wanted to. And that person would probably never get cancer, but it might get lots of other problems that okay we, that we couldn't predict yeah i definitely see what you mean by that then yeah the the whole concept of genetic genetic engineering embryos human embryos and you know these are developing humans obviously they're not they don't have sentience like we do you know after a certain age and whatnot but they still you know have have rights to a degree and yeah it's definitely medical ethics is you know going to have a field day with that with the, with genetic engineering in the future yeah <laughs> probably I mean, already is. you know they get to they get to be 15 years old and they say what did you do to me yeah <laughs> parents, yeah right? no exactly exactly yeah, yeah that's yeah like you said that's a slippery slope and i think that's fair 
Um, okay, so yeah, so there's a bunch of interesting things that happen from an aging standpoint, from you know, or longevity, I should say, uh, you know, with flying animals, mammals. Uh, then we have the terrestrial. You know, you're talking about elephants, the naked mole rats, and you have an entire portion of your book too devoted to the sea because there's a bunch of interesting, interesting animals that live in the sea, and there are animals that age much better than we do. And you know, you talk about fish, whales, urchins, uh, worms, and things like that. But I particularly wanted to talk about whales just because, well, you know, we're mammals. Whales are mammals. We've been kind of on the uh, you know, sticking to mammals. So let's let's dig into that a little bit. Sure. Um, I mean, <clears throat> I think no one would be surprised to learn that whales can live really a very long time. Um, the longest live one that we know about, we think, you know, the official estimate is that it, it lived 211 years. Um, as I describe in the book, the, the way that they estimated that age is by certain chemistry and certain assumptions about the chemistry. I actually think, you know, there's a real problem in the field with exaggerating the age of animals. This is one instance where I think that we may have underestimated uh, the age of whales. I think it's quite plausible that the bowhead whale can live 250 or 300 years. And I say that because um, the chemistry that they use to make these estimates depends on the temperature of the chemical being measured. And they were measuring the proteins in the eyelids. And the bowhead whale lives in Arctic waters. It lives, uh, you know, and, and so water that's basically freezing all the time. The assumption they made was that the that the temperature that the eye was at, which is just centimeters from this freezing water, is the same as the core body temperature of the whale. And I think that's wrong. But let's say they only live up to 211 years. Um, considering that they avoid cancer that long. And, you know, there was this thing, this point I make in the book about the effect of body size on cancer. So if you think about it, virtually every cell in your body could potentially turn into a cancer cell and grow and kill you. Well, things that have a lot more cells have a lot bigger danger of that happening. Um, so they have to have better cancer resistance. Well, whales are huge. The other thing is we, because they live in such cold water, particularly the bowhead whales, they have to have a relatively high metabolism. Now their large size protects them against uh, losing heat to a certain extent because they have a small surface area relative to their body. But it's not as great as we thought because quite recently they've actually started calculating, well, how much do these great whales eat? And what they, you know, smaller animals like porpoises, we know they have a much higher body uh, uh, metabolism than you would expect uh, because water is so good at robbing heat from our body. They need to crank up the engine. Turns up that whales metabolism looks like it's about three times higher than we previously thought just from looking at how big they were and making certain assumptions. So that means that the whales that live over 200 years are even more interesting uh, than we thought. Now, it's going to be hard to bring whales in the lab, um, but it doesn't mean that we can't learn a great deal potentially from studying cells 
from whales. At one point in, in my life, I went out with some whale researchers who were basically trying to figure out how cells and uh, how whales in a group were related to one another. So they needed to get DNA from them. And so they would uh, basically shoot them with these crossbows, but they had a little stop on it so that they could only go about a get a plug. It's kind of like doing a muscle biopsy. This was a skin biopsy. They would get some fat and, and, and basically extract the DNA from the DNA that could tell who was related to whom. Well, you could grow those cells that were in that biopsy in the lab, and we're getting so good today at doing gymnastics with cells in the lab. Right? Now we can take regular skin cells, turn them into stem cells, re-differentiate them into heart cells or lung cells or brain cells. We can do this with mice. We can do this with humans. There's nothing to say we couldn't do this with whale cells as well and grow a little clump of them. And we could even form them into little organ-like things and maybe look at whale hearts, you know, whale heart or a heart-like part of a whale. There are all these gymnastics that we can do with cellular biology now that have just arisen in the last decade that would allow us to take something as exotic and difficult to keep in the lab as a whale and learn a great deal from it. So I, I think these animals in the ocean that are very hard to get, um, very hard to get your hands on and impossible to keep in the laboratory, there's still quite a bit that I think we're going to be able to learn from them about living uh, longer, healthier lives. Very interesting. And is it correct to say that whales are the longest lived mammals on the planet? Is yes. that Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. There's no other mammal. We're the second longest live as far as we know. Um, uh, and whales, I mean, you know, we don't have a lot of information on whales because, you know, we're not hunting whales anymore. But what we know is either come from past hunts or from, from hunts that indigenous people still do because it's their traditional way of life. So, um, but yet um, we know enough to know that they're really, really interesting and that we don't have to kill them in order to potentially learn a great deal from them. I, I would hate to, you know, I, I'm delighted that whaling, is, international whaling is now um, banned because uh, uh, they're such fascinating animals. They're absolutely fascinating. You know, sperm whale has a brain three times as big as we do. You know, they might have things to teach us that we don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I find whales to be absolutely fascinating as well. And what I think is so interesting about whales is it's clearly a mammal, which means it came from land. So at one point in the past, and you talk about this in the book, it was some sort of hooved carnivore, hooved carnivore <laughs> on land. And then it moved into the water and clearly it doesn't get, look anything like that. It has, you know, it has flippers. Some, some of the whales kept their teeth. Others, they evolved the baleen, which they became filter feeders. You know, they have, they have, uh, they have these tails now for propulsion, streamlined bodies. Yeah, it's just absolutely fascinating. And also the blue whale is the largest creature, correct me if I'm wrong, to like have ever existed. And it's currently alive right now. Yeah. And, and. And this all happened fairly quickly in evolutionary time. You know, they went from being this 
modest sized, you know, uh, uh, sort of hoofed carnivore to being these enormous creatures. You know, it, it, it really happened within probably 10 million years, which well, for evolutionary time, that's very, very quick. And we have a lot to learn from them. So from a longevity yep. standpoint, so hopefully we yep. can kind of figure out the inner, inner machinery there sometime in the immediate future here. And maybe uh, maybe something will get turned into some therapeutic drug that humans can use then to extend their own lifespans. So I, I guess while we're, so. up, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> while, while we're on the topic of extending human lifespans, there is an entire, and you, you mentioned this towards the end of your book, there's an entire field right now, and it's gained a lot of popularity, particularly with like tech billionaires over the past decade or so, such as Jeff Bezos and others, where it's called gerontology, right? So it's essentially treating aging like it's a disease. So it seems like the max humans can live right now is about like 100 and, I don't know, 110, 120 years or so. I think that the world record is 122 or something like that. But given our standard of life and we've kind of removed all of these external factors, maybe we could go over um, go over that as well. You You talk a little bit about kind of like these dominating factors that you see throughout through the various animal kingdoms or the various animals that you have studied where there are these commonalities to extended life such as having an external environment that doesn't have you know a safe external environment um, a, a slower metabolism they produce young uh, not in large amounts or it takes a long time to reach a reproductive age but anyways, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and chat about that for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so, so there are some there are some patterns in nature. You know, there are animals that live long because they live slow. Tortoises are are like that. Um, Greenland shark is like that. They they do everything very 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 slowly. They live a very long time, but they don't live a very long time in a way that I think is particularly translatable to the way humans would want to live a very long time. Um, that's one way to live a long time. Another way is to, is to fly. Another <laughs> way is to live in a very, very safe environment or to combine all of those things. And then you get really exceptional uh, longevity. Um, but, but I think that the ones that are going to translate to help us uh, live longer are the ones that defy the patterns that defy the metabolic constraints defy the dna constraints um i mean there are these salamanders that 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 are you know this long that are less than a foot long and live a century but they do it by doing things very 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 slowly i just can't envision people who well maybe i could be wrong because i'm often wrong about uh, um some people who want to live a long time by living an extremely slow uh, life. So yeah, the, the patterns are uh, be big, live in a safe environment, fly, have a low metabolic rate. If you actually calculate the number of heartbeats in the lifetime of a Greenland shark, which evidence suggests could live almost 400 years, uh, it's not nearly the number of heartbeats that our hearts beat, much less the number of heartbeats that a hummingbird's heartbeats in its, you know, 12 or 14 year lifespan. So um, I think 
there the, the I love the patterns. I love the patterns because you know it, it it keeps nature from just being overwhelmingly complex. Being able to impose some patterns on it is very satisfying. However, I think those patterns also demonstrate that there's a subset of the long-lived animals from which we're likely to learn the most important lessons for human longevity. Uh, and the others are are interesting, are curious, um, but probably less relevant to the current human condition. And which animals, in your opinion, based off of all of your work, are the most prom promising where we could study them further and adapt perhaps what they've got going on from a longevity standpoint into a lifestyle, turn it into some sort of therapeutic? What, uh, the, uh, the, the, the huge overlooked group of animals are the birds because they live a long time despite having a very high metabolic rate, very hot body temperature, very high blood glucose, and they stay healthy a long. It's not just they live a long time, but they stay really vigorous and fit to, to the bitter end. Um, and, and there's 10,000 species of them. So mm -hmm. there's lots and lots of opportunities for us uh, to learn from them. And like I said, some of the most common ones are just as interesting as some of the very rare ones. And so I don't think people have sufficient appreciations for just how extraordinary, it's probably familiarity, you know, familiarity breeds indifference. And so we see birds all the time flying 25 miles an hour, and then they drop onto a pencil thin twig with perfect poise and balance. And it never occurs to us, <laughs> we just saw an athletic feat that is absolutely astonishing. Uh, well, their longevity is also astonishing. And I, I think that's the big, those are the un, uncharted waters that we could really are ready to start swimming in, I think. All right, birds, birds it is. Now, real uh, real quick too, with the gerontology, this whole subset of science that focuses on extending the human lifespan, there's a lot of money that's been poured into it, like I had mentioned yeah. um, not too long ago. And do you think that we'll actually be able to extend the human life past the 120 that we're kind of stuck at right now? I know that you make a, you kind of make a bet towards the end of the book. Yeah. So. Yeah, I yeah, do. I. Yeah. How much I, I don't, though? How much? How much? How far can we go? I mean, will we be able to I live forever? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. So, what I think is a plausible uh, ex extension of human life is about 20% from where we are now. And I say that because we have found many, many ways to make laboratory animals live 20% longer. I, I knock laboratory animals because they're so unsuccessful at aging, but some of those things that we're discovering are likely to be relevant to humans. You know, we'd say the same thing about cancer. We're learning about cancer from studying mice, one of the most cancer prone animals in the world. And it's true that most of the things that we discover about preventing and treating and curing cancer in mice don't work out for people, but about one in 10 does. And if one in 10 of the aging advances that we learned from studying the traditional animals does translate to humans, and I think, I think some of it will, then I think a 20% increase in our health span and our lifespan 
is quite plausible. And I, and I focus on the health because the last thing in the world we want is to basically uh, uh, keep us alive in a more and more feeble state for longer and longer. Um, but from the animal work where we have extended their lives, it looks like extending health is really possible. And so the, the, the wager that I have with, with J.L. Shansky is when the first person to live to the age of 150 is. Now that's about 20% longer than the current longest, which is 122 years, as you said. And I think that person is already alive. Um, now to, to win my wager, and it's supposedly worth a billion dollars now, um, <laughs> only one person has to live that long. I'm not saying that everybody will live to be 150, but I do think a hundred year sort of life expectancy is plausible. And uh, with maybe 90 years of that being routinely healthy years. Um, and the reason I say that, so what, what Olshansky likes to say, because he's more convinced than ever, we made this bet, by the way, 20 years ago. Um, so he's feeling very good because nobody in the last 20 years has <laughs> lived as long as Jean Calment, who died at 122 years in 1997. So he's feeling very good about that. I'm feeling very good because of the therapies we know that make mice live longer. It turns out that they have almost as big a benefit if you start them late in life as if you start them early in life. And that means that the person to live to 150 doesn't have to be taking any medications today. Let's say that person is 25 years old. That person still has another 25 or 30 or 40 years during which we could develop these things. And if they started taking it, then could still live to the 150 years um, so that I could win the bet, you know, hopefully. And the idea is that we, we put this money into a, a, a blind account and it accumulates for 150 years. And then uh, if some, if there is 150 years old person, then um, in the best case scenario, I will get all the accumulated money. Uh, in the more likely scenario, my kids or my grandkids will get all the accumulated money. And if not, then his great, 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 great grandchildren will, will, will get the money. And um, I have to say, this is a friendly wager. We, we, we are both on the same page about a lot of stuff. The only place we differ is how fast we will progress in this search for uh, extending health. He's a more pessimistic than I am about that. Well, at least somebody's great, great, great grandchildren will be billionaires because of this wager. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Now, it may be at that point, the billion dollars will only buy you a fine dinner, but uh, yeah. we'll have to see. <laughs> I guess we will. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see what happens. I I personally think that we can extend the life, uh, human lifespan and particularly the health span, as you had said, and I think that's really important as well. But I don't know if the aging will ever actually be solved altogether. Like, I'm always curious to think, will humans one day be able to live forever within the current bodies? We may be able to figure something out where we can extract our consciousness and upload it into a computer or some sort of synthetic, synthetic body or something like that. But if we'll ever actually be able to get to a point where you can you know, halt aging in a human body or maybe even reverse it and have it stick at a certain spot. 
that is a realm of science fiction at this point. <laughs> so yeah, and I think it's likely to stay a realm of science fiction because the reason I I, I think twenty percent is we can do that in a lot of animals, uh, but there is no animal that ages that we can we've been able to stop aging at all. So until we can do it in something simple, where we can control everything, the genetics, the environment. Um, until we can do it in something like that, I see very little prospect we're going to do it in something as complex as ourselves. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how uh, all this aging research plays out over the over the coming century. But anyway, uh, Stephen, it's been a wonderful conversation. Again, I just want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time. But anyway, where can people find your book? Where can they connect with you? So, well, they can connect with me on, on my website, which is stephenostad.com. They can find my book uh, basically in your local bookstore on amazon.com and the MIT Press uh, site, um, Barnes & Noble. All of the major uh, bookstores uh, will have it. And uh, uh, yeah, it should be very easy to find. And uh, they can also track me down at my academic address. Um, and I'm happy to... I. I get lots of emails from people who are interested in aging and longevity and the work we're doing. And uh, I, I really like to talk to people about it. All right. Wonderful. Sounds great. Anyway, for those of you that are stopping by, thank you so much. As always, um, go ahead, leave a review, share, hit that like button. Always appreciate, appreciate your feedback and stay tuned for more great content coming forward. Take care.